Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Grantham Church. Great to see all of you in worship. That leader that uh, Pastor Denise was talking about is my wife, so you can pray for her because sickness is in the house. Everybody has been sick except me. Not even Catholic, I just did that. It's okay. So glad that you're here. So glad that you're here this morning and we continue in our series. You know, one of my favorite uh, movies is The Gladiator. It's become a classic. Anybody else like The Gladiator? Yeah, towards the beginning of the film, there is a scene uh, where Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, uh, comes into a tent where his father, Marcus Aurelius, who's played by Richard Harris, is... And uh, he, he's already anticipating that his father is going to die soon. He's the emperor. And so he's hoping that he will pass on the reins of power to him. But if you know the movie, you know that's not what happens, is it? Uh, Commodus comes in. Marcus Aurelius tells him that he will not be emperor. Instead, the powers will pass to Maximus, who is the main character in the film. And Commodus... Uh, is not happy about this. This is what he says. Commodus says to his father, you wrote to me once listing the four chief virtues, wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. As I read the list, I knew I had none of them, but I have other virtues, father, ambition. That can be a virtue when it drives us to excel. Resourcefulness, courage, perhaps not on the battlefield, but there are many forms of courage. Devotion to my family and to you. And Commodus said, but none of my virtues were on your list. Even then, it was as if you didn't want me for your son. So if you've seen the film, you know the, the, the rest of that scene. It's not, it's not a great scene. Uh, it's pretty dark. And uh, Commodus, when he eventually embraces his father, smothers him in his chest until he can't breathe and of course passes away. You know, it's a sad tale. I, it, the, the story goes on, it's about Maximus, but I wonder how often we stop and think about Commodus and his relationship to his father. Uh, we see really a lack of love and of affirmation, of moral guidance and character formation from his father. I mean, Commodus here, and this is historical fiction, by the way. We don't believe any of this actually happened. Uh, but in the story of the movie, Commodus is a really evil guy. And so, you, but do we need to think, though, about that connection to his father and what his father didn't give him? We see also this dark side of egocentric living, ambition, as he said, and this way of conniving to get one's way. And so we're going to see a similar version of this today in the biblical character of Jacob in a message called Wrestling with God. 
This is the second sermon, our 12-week sermon, summer sermon series, Saints and Sinners. And in this series, we're looking at various biblical characters throughout the Old and New Testaments who were far from perfect. In fact, uh, they were messy and broken just like the rest of us. And so through their stories, we see how God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our past, our shallow faith, our sin, our doubt, and our age and limitations. He's simply looking for people who will give him their heart and trust him with their life, and then he will give us his grace. If you would turn with me now to the book of Genesis, book of Genesis chapter 25, we're going to begin with verse 19. And as you are turning there, pray with me. Father, uh, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in this time that we have together as we open up your word, as we seek to understand its meaning and apply it to our lives. Lord, we want to hear from you. Lord, we know that you can build faith in us. God, that you can teach us. Lord, we recognize that you and you alone are all that we really need. You're what we're created for. So Lord, speak to us now, for your servants are listening. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Genesis chapter 25, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Chapter 25, beginning with verse 19. This is the account of the family of Isaac the son of Abraham. Last Sunday, if you're with us, we talked about Abraham and his faith. And so this is his grandson. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. You've seen the pattern here. We saw this last Sunday uh, with Abraham and Sarah. Same problem with Isaac and Rebekah. So Isaac pleads with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she's unable to have children. And Yahweh answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. Literally in Hebrew, as they, they clashed with each other in her womb. So she went to ask Yahweh about it. Why is this happening to me? And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. Well, that sounds like fun. So they named him Esau. Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. So Isaac sounds like a Hebrew term that means hair or hairy. And Jacob's name is formed on the root word meaning to grab someone by the heels, to trip them up, to hinder them or betray them. So here we have hairy and heel. How about that for two boys? Let's keep reading in verse 27. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. <laughs> but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. So he was a mama's boy, right? That's what it's trying to tell us, I think. 
One day when Jacob was cooking, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse, 28. Isaac loved Esau. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, <laughs> you see the problem already? <laughs> and this will be a problem uh, through the Old Testament in the line of, of Israel here. Uh, family favoritism. Isaac loved his older son, literally, it says, because of the game in his mouth, <laughs> because he liked the food that his son uh, would hunt, kill, and make for him and prepare for him to eat. His stomach, you see, steered the direction of his heart. I think the text is trying to tell us that. Isaac had his favorite, as did Rebecca, and they made it known. This can't be good for your family, folks. Can't be good. Verse 29, one day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. This dude's famished. Look at verse 30. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. Literally, the Hebrew says, let me gulp it down. <laughs> Let me gulp it down. The stew uh, is, is describing it like, like an animal would, would drink. Esau only says red. He doesn't actually say the word stew in Hebrew. Give me some of the red. Let me gulp it down. You see how this is portraying him here. He's appearing to be as uncouth as a dog and unable to speak properly. Mm. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. Verse 31, all right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. I wonder if he thought that was a joke at first, but verse 32 says, look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. And so Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. His, his, uh, the firstborn rights would mean that he would receive all of the inheritance from the father, you see. Verse 34, and then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. In his book, Limping with God, Chad Bird comments here on this passage saying, if Esau treated his birthright with contempt, then Jacob treated his older brother with equal, if not greater, contempt. Esau comes across as a dumb ox and Jacob as an ice-cold lawyer. He immediately sizes up the situation, goes for the jugular with legal precision. There's no fraternity, no compassion, no hesitancy to treat a fellow human being with mercy. One commentator puts it, Esau capitulates and Jacob capitalizes. All that matters to Jacob is Jacob. This may not be the same as price gouging after a hurricane, Chad Bird says, but is equally despicable. And now that he has his birthright, Jacob will go after his father's blessing. So the birthright has been legally given over, and now he needs in person the blessing from his father. I'm going to summarize chapter 27 if you want to go ahead and go there and just skim through that. This is what you'll find. Isaac knows his time on earth is coming to an end, so he asks Esau to kill him one more meal. Fix it just like I like it. 
You know how I like it, (laughs) he says to Esau. And then he'll give Esau his blessing, which for Hebrews would have involved a touch, uh, a word of affirmation from the Father, an envisioning of the future, some sort of envisioning, uh, words spoken over them of things to come that everyone would recognize as official and binding. So Rebecca overhears what Isaac intends to do, and so she schemes on behalf of Jacob, right? Because she loves Jacob. She tells him to go quickly and kill two young goats, and she will cook them up the way Isaac likes it. She wants Jacob to pretend to be Esau and receive this one-time blessing. But Jacob points out that his father will know that he's not Esau because why? He's not hairy. (laughs) He's not hairy like Esau, and he doesn't have Esau's smell. I mean, just Esau had a way about him that Jacob doesn't have, right? But his mother says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of that too. She puts Esau's clothes on Jacob. She covers his neck and arms with goat hair and tells Jacob to get in there and pretend to be your older brother Esau. Isaac is old, he's blind, and he's dying, and he'll never know. I mean, folks, this is terrible, isn't it? They're about to take advantage of this old, dying man. But Isaac suspects something is off, doesn't he? You remember this? Jacob comes in pretending to be Esau. He says, son, how, how did you find it so quickly? And then he's, you know, he says, oh, well, the Lord blessed me. Not bringing God into this. And he asks at some point in the conversation, but are you really my son? Is this really you, Esau? And then when Jacob bends down to kiss him, Isaac smells Esau's clothes. Esau had an aroma, right? And now he's fully convinced. So he gives him the blessing, and Jacob and Rebekah leave just before Esau arrives. Esau comes in, and he says to his father, Sit up, Dad, and eat my wild game so you can give me your blessing. Of course, this confuses Isaac, and he says, who are you? Esau says, it's me. It's your firstborn. And then they both realize that they've been deceived. Esau begs for a blessing. But Isaac says, I'm sorry, son. There's none left to give. I've already given it, and that's final. And so Esau decides that once his father passes away, He is going to kill his brother, Jacob. Well, leave it to mom to help son out again. Rebecca hears about his plans and tells Jacob he needs to flee for his uncle Laban's house in Haran. Remember that place, that city that Abraham had passed through on his way to Canaan. She says, get out of town for a while until your brother cools off and forgets about what you've done. And it makes you wonder, as the reader, you think he's going to forget that? <laughs> really? And so with the blessing and the promise of God that was first given to Abraham, Isaac then passes on that blessing and, and that promise of Abraham's to Isaac, now to Jacob, and sends him to Haran in hopes that he would find a wife and start his family there. And on the way to Haran, Jacob has his first experience with God, his first experience with God. Look at Genesis chapter 28, beginning with verse 10. So up to this point, Isaac only knows of the family deity because of Isaac's story and Isaac's faith. 
Now look what happens in chapter 28, verse 10. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway, so ascending and descending. Now, first off, you'll notice, and this happens many times in the Bible, and still today in the East, that dreams are a way in which God often speaks to people. You know, maybe it happens more in the East because they, they half expect this, that this is the way God communicates to them. And there is something to say about that. When we're asleep, our soul and spirit are sort of vulnerable, right? And you've, you've probably had all kinds of weird, crazy dreams, but maybe, I know I have, you've had a dream where God really seems to be involved. And here is what happens with Jacob. Angels on a stairway going up and down. What's this about? At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, Yahweh. He said, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your grandfather, Abraham, and the God of your father, Isaac. And the ground that you're lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. So not only does Isaac honor his blessing, so does God. And again, this is the first experience that we know of that Jacob has with the Lord. He says in verse 14, your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions to the west and to the east, to the north and the south, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. Where we heard that before. Abraham received that, remember? What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything that I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. I, I tend to think that Jacob isn't just sort of talking about the land, the, this place itself, which he'll go on and name Bethel, the house of God. But surely the Lord is real. <laughs> surely God is here and he does have a relationship with, with my family. I can hear Jacob saying this. Because, but he was also afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. It's as if heaven and earth, that veil grew really thin there in that place, much like it will in the temple. The next morning, Jacob got up very early, verse 18. He took the stone that he'd rested his head against, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. This is a common thing to do in the ancient Near East, set up a, a pillar of stones, some sort of uh, memorial to, to commemorize the event, to remember it. Then he poured olive oil over it, to sort of to anoint it, to make it holy. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God, although it was previously called Luz. And then Jacob made this vow. He said, if God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, if he will pro provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. Now notice, God is using this moment when Jacob is afraid for his life. 
So maybe he doesn't have sort of the best intentions, but God still uses it. Aren't you glad he does that with us? Jacob's running for his life, afraid for his future, and God visits him. And he says, this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God. I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. It's a fascinating part of Jacob's story, this dream, this first experience with God. And there is a New Testament signpost here. Do you remember in the Gospels, in John chapter 1, when Jesus encounters Nathanael, who's a bit skeptical of Jesus, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Remember him? And Jesus told Nathanael, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's Jesus doing? He's tapping into this story. First century Jewish tradition said that there, they believed the image of a man's face was engraved on the throne of God, and that image of the face was Jacob. And so we can actually hear Jesus saying here, you've got it wrong, folks. <laughs> the angels will be ascending and descending on me. That is, heaven and earth are coming together in me. Jacob's experience had more to do with his part in a larger story. It's important to to point that out. Jesus saying, rather, it's about me. I'm bringing heaven to earth. Then after this experience, Jacob goes on to Haran. That's where he was headed, remember, to Laban's house. And God will begin his work of humbling this trickster. In Genesis 29 through 31, we read where Jacob is welcomed by his uncle Laban. And right away, Jacob has a romantic connection with Laban's youngest daughter. You remember this? With Rachel. And so after a month of working for Laban, Laban said, you know, you're a pretty good worker, and I don't want you to just do this for free. How about I pay you? So he wants to pay Jacob, but Jacob has a better idea. Remember, he's kind of the schemer. Say, I got a better idea. How about I work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel to be my wife? And then Laban agrees. Jacob doesn't know what's coming. At the end of the seven years, they prepare a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, it must have been really dark. <laughs> Rachel goes in to be his wife, or, or you, he thinks it's Rachel, but it's not. Laban tricks Jacob and sends his oldest daughter Leah into this tent. Somehow Jacob doesn't notice that he's been duped until the morning. I don't know. Maybe he had too much wine, but it's not until the morning. Obviously, Jacob gets a little taste of his own medicine. Why have you tricked me? He says to Laban. Why have you done, why have you deceived me? (laughs) And then Laban says, hey, it's not our custom to marry off the youngest daughter before the firstborn. (laughs) Can you imagine Jacob? Well, why did you say that before? Obviously, Jacob says he gets a taste of his own medicine. Or as uh, Michael Scott would say, oh, how the turn tables. (laughs) No doubt this is humbling to Jacob. So Laban says, don't worry. Okay, at the end of the week, at the end of the bridal week, I'll give you Rachel too. But you're going to have to work for me for seven more years if you want Rachel. So Jacob agrees. I mean, what's he going to do? Go back home to Esau? He's not ready for that. So Jacob agrees, and just as we've seen before in this family, problems continue through the picking of favorites, of loving one more than the other. That's what Jacob does with his wives. 
having multiple wives and mothers of children. Folks, this is a recipe for disaster. You know, sometimes people want to scoff and mock the sort of the biblical idea of marriage and say, well, which one? And they point to all these examples. The point of this story isn't, hey, go do this. Get yourself a bunch of wives. The, one of the points of the story ought to be, say, this is a mess. This is a mess. And then, you know, the parents playing favorites and the husband playing favorites with their wives and taking concubines. Not a good deal. Not a good deal. And so over a period of 20 years, Jacob will acquire four wives and have 11 children. And as you might imagine, a large family like this begins to cause problems with the rest of Laban's family. Remember those 11 kids plus one later become the 12 tribes of Israel. Hmm. So, a Hatfield McCoy feud kind of begins between Laban's family and Jacob's family. The tensions grow to the point where something has to be done. And then God tells Jacob, it's time to leave. And after what appears to be the work of the Lord, the two families avert disaster and Laban decides to make a treaty and to covenant with Jacob. They agree to part on good terms. They set up a pile of stones as a sign of the vow and Jacob offers a sacrifice to God. They all eat together and then they go their separate ways. And it really does, if you read the story, it it seems kind of unexpected. Uh, as if God was involved in this. And so, and this leads to the most significant event and spiritual experience in Jacob's life and in his growing faith. Remember, he doesn't know God all that well. He's only had one experience that we've been given of this God making a promise to him. And so, as Jacob prepares to return home and face his brother after 20 years, he's going to see Esau. He's no doubt sort of boiling over inside. You can just imagine this, all kinds of feelings, fears, doubt, anger, uncertainty about his faith and about his future. And then look at Genesis 32, beginning with verse 22. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servants, servant wives and his 11 sons, and he crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. Now this left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. And then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. And then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means the face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. And then there's sort of a commentator's note here. Even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night. 
when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. Now, what is going on here? I'm sure you have a couple of different questions, as I did when you read this text. This whole experience seems to embody all of Jacob's feelings and inner struggle in his life up to this point. I think that's one of the things the author wants us to see. His feelings of not being good enough for his father, of not being given a legitimate blessing, of trying to fill the void in himself through ambition, right? Knowing that he had been a deceiver and a trickster, that he had been a real heel grabber and a manipulator of people, especially in how he took advantage of his old blind, dying father. I could just imagine all of this coming out as Jacob is wrestling with this mysterious person. I mean, maybe he thought it was Esau at first, right? Come to a surprise attack. But as he wrestles, he begins to notice this is not Esau. All of these things bubble up. As he wrestled, I imagine he thought of how he had been cheated out of years of his life by his own uncle, knowing even still that he probably deserved it. And he wrestled because he needed God to be real to him now more than ever as he prepares to face Esau after 20 years. And it all comes out in his wrestling with this divine figure who clearly represents God. The text at the end wants us to see that. Jacob wrestles because it is needed to form his faith. It's needed to get the old Jacob out so God can do a new thing and give him a new identity. And that's what happens. That's what happens as Jacob wrestles with God. And notice he has a limp to prove it. Listen to what Chad Bird again, he writes in his book, Limping with God, Jacob in the Old Testament Guide to Discipleship. He says, it seems as if our scars, like fingerprints, are unique to each person. Jacob had a limp. I have mine, and you have yours, or soon will. Each of these scars, limps, and Paul-like thorns in the flesh are incessant reminders that we live every moment of every day solely by the grace of God. The life of discipleship is not about us getting stronger. Rather, it's about growing increasingly aware of our weakness and the Lord's strength. And so as we heard last week, we must trust God. We must rely upon his wisdom and his favor, his blessing, and his affirmation as Jacob comes to learn. His strength, his power, not our own, you see. Despite our brokenness, God wants to bless us. But sometimes, sometimes we must wrestle. Sometimes we must wrestle and then surrender to his will and to his way and walk by grace through faith. And that's what Jacob does when he meets his brother Esau for the first time since he schemed against him and ran out. In Genesis chapter 33, Jacob and Esau, we read, are reconciled. Not what Jacob expected from his brother. It seems as if God had done a work in his heart as well. 
Jacob approaches Esau as a broken and humble man. He bows down before him, and Jacob is surprised when Esau runs up to him and embraces him. Esau throws his arms around him, kisses him, and the Bible says that they just sat there and cried together. What a scene. Just imagine that scene. Jacob, clearly humbled, offers him gifts, many gifts. Esau refuses. Jacob insists. And then, G- and then Esau says, okay, and he accepts. And finally, in Genesis chapter 35, we're told that Jacob's family settles at Bethel. Remember the place he had his dream. Jacob goes back there where he had set up those memorial stones, that place where he first encountered God. And he tells his family to get rid of their idols. That really jumped out at me in the text. He hasn't said that yet. (laughs) It's at this point, God is fully real to Jacob. Jacob knows him for himself. These experiences, this reconciliation has moved Jacob to faithfulness, to obedience, to surrender to Yahweh. And God reaffirms the covenant there with Jacob. What an amazing story. What an amazing life. And what an amazing testament to God's mercy, grace, and hope for us all, right? Think about some of the lessons that we can learn from Jacob's life. Just a few. When I look at this story, I see, you know, Jacob is like us. He's like us in our desire for affirmation and sometimes the poor ways which we try to get it. A real blessing of God, as we see in this story, can't be taken, it can't be earned, but it's only received. It only can be received. This is the nature, you see, of God's grace. Another lesson we see is the blessings and affirmations of other people and things will never be enough. Jacob, come to realize this. It won't be enough. While these things can be good, and believe me, folks, I understand. We all want the blessing of our Father, don't we? So it can be good, but there's no guarantee they will come. Many of us know this. And nor when they come, can they fully satisfy. We still need a Bethel don't we? We still need to wrestle with God. And so we also see here in this story, we must be humbled. Yes, the scripture, James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he'll lift you up. And that's a good idea. I encourage you to do that. But sometimes we have to be humbled. Do you see that? It's a good idea to humble yourself, right? To think of, I'm going to humble myself. It's another thing to be humbled. And Jacob was humbled. And folks, sometimes, and I know we don't like it. I don't like it. You don't like it. God must humble us. And God will use experiences to do that when we are dead set on doing our own thing. We also see that real faith involves wrestling with God. I don't think it's just something for Jacob. We all must be honest with God. We all must come to this place where we bear our souls to him and let all that stuff bubble up and spill over as it does with Jacob. 
even if it's in a moment of vulnerability, even if our motives aren't completely pure, it doesn't matter. God will meet us there. God will meet us there if we'll wrestle with him. And as we saw with Abraham and as we'll continue to see with other characters in this series, Jacob was both a saint and a sinner, right? And if that's true for Jacob, then there's certainly hope for us. Amen? Amen. As we close, think about some of these questions here for reflection and response. We asked this question last Sunday. Let's ask it again with Jacob. Can you see yourself in Jacob? Are there any places in Jacob's life where you really resonate with that? What moment was that for you? Just pick one. What was it? What's God saying to you about that? Number two, a missing blessing or lack of affirmation from a loved one may have negatively impacted you. As I said before, I get it. Well, will you let God heal you and bless you as only he can? God, the psalmist says, is a father to the fatherless. Will you let him be that for you? Will you come to that place of wrestling with God where you accept the only blessing and affirmation I need is the Lord's? And then lastly, number three. How is God inviting you to accept that struggle and wrestling with him is part of building your faith? You know, it it could be that at this point you've refused to all-out fight with God. Maybe it's because of maybe something you were taught or you think, well, I'm not supposed to do that and just tell the Lord what I think. That's, that's irreverent or disrespectful. But folks, can I submit to you that God can handle it? If there's anything that we should get from the Psalms, and there are many of them, we should tell God exactly what we're thinking and feeling. Because until we do, we've not really begun to pray. I would encourage you to think about that. I'd encourage you to wrestle with God if that's what you need in this part of your own faith journey. Let's pray together. Father, we, we recognize, Lord, the truths and the lessons that are in this story. God, teach us. Help us to see that what you did for Jacob, you can do for us. Lord, also help us to see that the signposts, they point to Jesus. Jesus who shows us what the Father is really like. A Jesus who pours out his mercy and his grace upon us, no matter who we are, what we've done, where we're coming from. And a Jesus, Lord, who brought heaven and is bringing heaven to earth. Who is, the, who is the word, who is the source of life, who said that men and women don't live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Holy Spirit, help us to know how we're to respond to the story of Jacob. And give us the strength. Give us the strength. Give us the courage to do it.
For it's in Christ's name that we pray.